everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us to deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And it is wonderful to welcome this week Dr. Ethan Schwartz, who is Assistant Professor of Hebrew Bible at Villanova University. He is unbelievably qualified for this, having gained his PhD from Harvard University, his BA in philosophy and Jewish studies from the University of Chicago, and also an MA in Hebrew Bible from the Jewish Theological Seminary. Dr. Schwartz's areas of interest are extremely broad, covering the Second Temple period. His research focuses on the prophetic literature with interest in the representation of prophetic authority and social critique, the comparative study of biblical and ancient Near Eastern prophecy, amongst many other things, and plenty of areas of interest that perhaps we look forward to to welcoming you back. But of course, today, Dr. Schwartz, wonderful to have you with us to explore the double parsha, but with really a particular focus on Balak. And of course, we are at the time of year when Israel and the diaspora are out of sync, but Chukat and Balak, of course, combine outside of Israel this week. And really, maybe to begin to explore, uh, as we will really focus, hone in on that in wonderful, incredible biblical character, Balaam, really the differences that you find, that we find in both Numbers and Deuteronomy with this character, what are the differences that we see and why is that important? Yeah, so first, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And as you were mentioning some of my areas of research, I should say one of the things that I love about this Parsha. And it actually, Balak is my favorite Parsha in the Torah. And one of the things I love so much about it is a lot of my interests naturally converge in the representation of um, this character, Bill. So I think a lot of aspects of what you just mentioned will show up over the course of our conversation. In terms of starting things off by looking at uh, the differences between these two versions, the one from our Parsha in numbers, and then the mention in Deuteronomy. I'll say that actually it's worth noting that Bilah does show up in small mentions throughout Tanakh, throughout the Hebrew Bible. And it can be very interesting to set those all side by side and see that there's a surprising amount of diversity in terms of what they seem to be focusing in the different sort of genres or agendas of these various versions. The two most substantive ones are the two that you just mentioned. But even then, there's a major distinction in terms of just how substantive they are. Because when most Jews think about this story and the character of Bilam, they think of this week's Parsha. They think of this uh, pretty, as far as the Bible goes, and certainly as far as the Torah goes, a pretty expansive narrative that spans several chapters of the book of Numbers, featuring a consistent plot line, consistent characters, a discernible arc 
of character development. You know, it's actually not usual within the Torah to see that sort of narrative consistency spread over that amount of time. Narratives in the Torah are often much more condensed and much more economical in terms of their language. And so we have this rather expansive narrative in numbers, and that's what most Jews associate with this character of Billah. By contrast, in Deuteronomy, it's not really even a narrative. It's more of, as many references in Deuteronomy, it's a historical callback to something in the past that the audience is expected to recognize, but they're not hearing for the first time. It actually comes up in Deuteronomy in the context of these laws about which non is sort of the relationships between the Israelites and different non-Israelite peoples. And there's a pretty severe exclusion of the Moabites. And, and Balak was a Moabite king, the person who hired Bilam. And, the, and Moses in Deuteronomy goes on to say that the reason why there's this severe exclusion of Moabites is because they hired, they hired Bilam. And what's so interesting is that even though Most Jews associate this story with the Parsha that is focused on it, and many Jews probably like aren't even totally aware or wouldn't necessarily remember off the top of their head that it's even mentioned in Deuteronomy. If you ask most Jews to summarize the story, they'll actually give you Deuteronomy's summary. And that's very interesting because according to Deuteronomy, it's just a couple of verses, but it basically says what happened in this episode is Balak, I actually don't remember if it mentions Balak specifically. No, I don't think it does. It just says the Moabites and the Ammonites, they hired Bilam, it does mention Bilam, to curse Israel, but God refused to listen to Bilam and instead changed his curse into a blessing, right? So that that roughly is what most how most Jews, I think, if you just ask them, give me a one-sentence summary of this week's Parsha, that's what they'd say. What's so interesting, though, is that if you actually read carefully in this in this week's parsha and don't come in with that assumption, you see that Bilam never says, "I'm going to curse Israel," and like tries to do that and then is foiled by God. Actually, Bilam tells it's true that's what Balak wants Bilam to do, of course. But Bilam says to him, "Look, I can only do what God says. I can only say." what God puts in my mouth. So you just have to know before we enter this business agreement, those are my terms. So actually the picture of Bila in the Parsha is in some ways much more complex and much more, uh, I don't want to say outright positive, but it doesn't squarely present Bilam as this evil villain in the way that he is cast in Deuteronomy and certainly in later rabbinic literature. He actually, in some ways, very strangely, is presented as almost a genuine servant of the God of Israel who really says, I'm going to do what this, this is the one true God and I'm going to do what he tells me to do. So that's the single, I think, most striking difference between the two versions. Amazing. We've been, of course, going through and once again encountering the way in which Deuteronomy changes history. So yet yet another common theme. Maybe let's move on to draw on your expertise of the ancient Near East with a particular focus on divination that, of course, Bilam is called upon to carry out. Uh, and But maybe to just understand your take on what divination is and whether or not Bilam really is a true example of a diviner. Yeah, definitely. So this, as you were just alluding to, this is a place where this story really activates my interest in the comparative study of ancient prophecies. Scholars 
use this term divination that I, in my experience, teaching this material to non-academic audiences, oftentimes people have, they've heard this term, they have a general sense of what it means, but it's one of those things that when you're actually asked to define it, you realize, oh, actually, I don't, I can't really explain what that is. Divination, roughly speaking, without getting into the whole messy scholarly debates about the term, the kind of rough definition would be, it's an attempt to discern some sort of divine meaning and intention by seeing, looking at the world and seeing that divine meaning intention embedded in the world in hidden ways, right? The idea is that the whole world is like a divinely authored text in a way, like filled with this secret meaning. And diviners are professionals who are trained in seeing what other people don't see to gain access to the to the divine realm. In the ancient world, a very prominent version of this would involve in the midst of a sacrifice, there were special diviners who would then, you know, after the animal was slaughtered, they would examine, it's very gory, they would examine the entrails of the animal. And they had this specialized training for looking at the different features of the entrails that actually had predictive value for, for figuring out the future. Oh, the liver is shaped like this. The intestine is shaped like that means that there's going to be a famine or there's going to be a war, stuff like that. And this, these were highly respected professionals who were commissioned to do this. Another example that is the sort of the most famous kind of divination today, still today would be astrology or horoscopy, right? Looking at the heavens and discerning some sort of meaning from there, right? If we usually were, use the term prophecy as something that is initiated by the deity, by the God in question, who then speaks to a human being and tells them what to say, divination, again, this is very roughly speaking, but moves the other direction, right? Divination is human beings who are trying to gain access to that divine knowledge by seeing it embedded in the world. So there's a lot of features of what of how Bilam is described that seem to align with what we know about diviners from the ancient Near East. And not perfectly, there's no sort of single, there were, very, there were various different types of diviners and there's no perfect fit. There's no, oh yeah, Bilam was clearly this kind of diviner or that kind of diviner. That doesn't seem to be the point of the story. The story seems to be creating a composite picture of these different kinds of diviners. So he, Bilam seems to be someone who is specially trained in communicating with the divine realm. And there's a lot of sort of hints about that, that he does this by the means of looking at omens and figuring things out. So what's interesting then, and this is where a lot of my work on the story ends up touching, is that if divination is about just gaining information from the divine realm, Balak actually hires him to convince, not just to gain information, but to actually do something, to affect a real change in the world, to curse Israel, right? So Normally, that scholars would not talk about that as being "quote unquote" divination. Like the scholarly category for that would be magic, right? If divination is an attempt to gain information from the divine realm, magic is an attempt to actually influence the divine realm and convince God, the gods, the gods to do things that you want them to do, right? So the truth is that in the ancient world, magic and divination were these are heuristic scholarly categories. In practice, they were very messily intertwined. But it is interesting about the story that Balak hires Bilam to basically do a magical thing, right? To convince the divine realm to curse Israel. And Bilam seems to be described more as someone who interacts with the divine realm and gains information, but doesn't necessarily ever claim to have power over it in that way.
Let's maybe address another area of seeming conflict, just as to where Bilam is actually from. It seems that there are different possibilities, and I wonder if you could go into them and share why that's important. Yeah, so this is a very subtle element of the story that is really easy to miss, but it's actually not clear where Billa comes from. And you, this is a place where, where the contrast with Deuteronomy is, is, again, helpful, because Deuteronomy very unambiguously situates him as coming from a place called Pitor Aram Naharayim, right? Or in, in the English translation, Pitor of Aram Naharayim. So Pitor being a city and Aram Naharayim being a region. We know that Aram Naharayim elsewhere in, in the Bible refers to Mesopotamia. So this is situating Bilam as being from a city called Pator in, in Mesopotamia. And for a long time, this kind of made sense to scholars. There's actually attestation of a Mesopotamian city called Pitru in the archaeological record that sounds a lot like Pator. And a Mesopotamian origin for Bilam would make a lot of sense because Mesopotamia was the capital of divination in the ancient world. It was a land that was very heavily associated with divination. And the Bible itself, the biblical authors knew about this, right? There's a line in Ezekiel where the prophet Ezekiel talks about the Babylonian king, you know, relying on divination in order to determine military activity and stuff like that. It would make sense that if Balak wanted to hire the top diviner, yeah, go to Mesopotamia. So what's interesting though, is that Every element of that label in, or that sort of place name in Deuteronomy, right? Pator, Aram, Naharayim. So you got three things there, Pator, Aram, and Naharayim, or Nahar, right? Naharayim is the dual form of Nahar, which means river, right? All three of those elements appear in the story in Numbers, in our Parsha, but never together in this way. It says in, it says in Numbers, right, that this is Numbers 22, verse 5. So it says that he that Balak sends for Bilam Petorah. So that's a directional, it seems to be a directional phrase in toward Petor, right? That is Al Nahar, right? So on the river, right? So there you have Nahar. And then it says confusingly, Eretz B'nai Amo, the land, the land of his people, which is an unhelpful phrase. Okay, the land of his people. We don't really know who his people are, so that doesn't really establish anything. And then Aram right, then shows up, which is a region near near Israel, shows up in not Mesopotamia, crucially, then shows up in the poetic sections of, of this week's Parsha, where Bill says that Balak took him from Aram. It's actually, whereas the Deuteronomy version is very straightforward, you have all the same pieces in numbers, but none of them appear together. So the way that scholars have gone about trying to make sense of this is very complicated. And just to give you the sort of quickest possible version there is a there is evidence from looking at different ancient versions of the Torah. So, for instance, different different translations, like the ancient Greek translation, the Septuagint, or the ancient Christian Aramaic translation, the Syriac, Syriac, right, things like that. Looking at different manuscripts, like from the Dead Sea Scrolls, by looking at these kinds of data that Bible scholars use to when we encounter strange and potentially corrupted passages in the Bible where there have been typos or intentional changes. There's some evidence that actually Pitor might have never really been a place, but actually 
refers to it, it's the tav and shin are often interchangeable in Hebrew. So it's not, it's what we normally think about as the Hebrew word pashar to interpret. And that can actually be a term for divination, right? In, in, in Semitic and Semitic languages. So actually this Petorah uh, in, in numbers might refer not to a place, but actually to Bilam himself. The Balak sent Petorah, meaning to the diviner. And then when it says Al-Hanahar, that river is not the is not the Euphrates, right? Is not the great river in Mesopotamia, which is how it's usually understood, but it's actually the Jordan River. So we're talking about a place that's much closer to, to the land of Israel. And then Eretz B'nai Amo, the land of his people, actually Amo should be Amon, the Ammonites, right? The land of the Ammonites, right? And that that also then would fit with the location on the Jordan River. So it actually then may be Bilam was really a lot closer. He didn't come from Mesopotamia. And the reason why this is interesting is that we actually have a fascinating non-biblical reference to Bilam from around the time when a lot of the Bible originated or was or was written, right? In the in the in the Iron Age. This it's an inscription probably from the 9th or 8th century BCE. It's written in a sort of Hebrew-like language. It might be a kind of Hebrew, it might be Aramaic, it's unclear. But it refers to someone named Bilam, son of Beor, who is clearly some sort of prophet or diviner. And that inscription was found in modern-day Jordan, in a place where if we read this as being the land of the Ammonites, like that's right where it would situate this. It's possible, uh, to sum this up, that in the original version of this story, Bilam was actually a, was like a local boy, right? He was actually a diviner who was much closer to Israel. And that's why Balak sent for him because he was local. You don't, he didn't go, oh, you don't have to get someone all the way from Mesopotamia. That's so far away. But then eventually, um, in later interpretations of the story, because there was this increasing preoccupation with Mesopotamia because of the imperial threats from the Neo-Assyrian and Neo-Babylonian empires and the increasing awareness of Mesopotamia as the capital of divination, it became literarily attractive to make Bilam from Mesopotamia as a way of saying that the God of Israel, his control actually extends all the way to those great diviners from Mesopotamia. Like he has, like they, they serve him ultimately as well. There's a lot more details that could be said there. It's a very complicated issue, but that's the basic, that's the basic case for why this thing that seems, oh, it's a random piece of information. Why do we care? It's actually really wrapped up with the point of the story as being about God and divination and the nature of prophecy. Thank you so much for at least partially clearing that up and suddenly planting <laughs> more seeds for exploration. Share, if I may, my own way of somehow often reading this episode with the talking donkey, but it casts in my mind very much a sort of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. And I wonder if actually going with that just for a second, whether this episode might, in fact, be seen as satire itself. I wonder what you think of that. I think that most scholars would say that the donkey story is satirical in some way. I think that is, Bill comes off looking like pretty bad in that story. And what's interesting is that's actually in contrast in some ways to the rest of the story, where I wouldn't say that in the rest of the story, Bill exactly comes off looking good per se, but he, again, he is presented as a genuine, well-intentioned servant of the God of Israel with this incredibly pious attitude about, look, Balak, at the end of the day, I can only do what God tells me to do, what to do, what God tells me to do. 
And in the donkey story, Bilam is presented as someone who is supposedly this amazing diviner who has this, this insight, note the etymological connection in that word with sight, with seeing, right? Who has this ability to see into the divine realm and yet can't see the danger that's right in front of him in the form of this angel who's standing there with a sword, whereas the donkey, the donkey actually can. Um, and so th- there is an element of this story that is clearly mocking Bilam as, oh, you think you're such a great diviner, but you actually can't see what's right in front of you. I think most scholars would affirm that the story has the satirical element. And there is something that is the about the characterizations, the prose. I mean, it's a brilliantly constructed little narrative. And I think deservingly characterized as a, a form of biting satire. A bigger scholarly question is less about that genre characterization, which I think most people are on board with. It's the question of how does this fit into the story as a whole? Because again, as I was just alluding to, there's a way in which the tone is quite different from the rest of the story, where again, Bilam might not come off looking great elsewhere, but he doesn't come off looking nearly as silly as he does in the donkey episode. And several scholars, and I would identify with this position, see this as a later addition to the story. And there's some evidence for that in terms of how there's a line right before the donkey episode about how Bilam is traveling with Balak's emissaries. And then after the donkey episode, that almost verbatim, that same line is repeated. That's often a a sort of a side effect of scribes splicing into a text, something that was not originally there. It seems to me like this satirical story of the donkey really highlighting the limitations of Bilam's divination was probably at minimum a separate story, maybe even later, written in light of some of those more negative traditions like we find in Deuteronomy. And at some point it was added in to the version of Numbers, but whereas some scholars would say it doesn't fit at all, it's totally at odds with the rest of the story, I see a good amount of continuity. It's Again, to repeat what I've said a few times, it's true that Bill, it looks worse here, but there is a general theme of establishing the limits of his divinatory power that is true in the main story and true in the donkey episode. So I see it as really fitting into the overall arc. Just on the continuation of the satirical theme i wonder really where else you see echoes of this in wider biblical literature and what the kind of theological importance of the satire is so the biblical authors and this is exactly the sort of thing i'm really interested in my academic work they are very engaged with this question about the nature of prophetic communication and the nature of the question of the sort of intermediation between the divine and human realms. That might sound to us like just such an obvious basic level of the Bible. It's the story of the relationship between God and Israel. God is the main character. God is the point of the whole thing. Of course, it's about divine human communication, but, but the mechanics of divine communication, how it actually works, who has access to it? How do they have access to it, right? These are, if you live as the ancient authors did in a world where you see God's activity all over the place and God really does communicate with human beings in an active way, the question of how it works, 
and for who and where, these are pressing questions that, yeah, they're theological, but they're also in some sense very practical and political. So a lot of the biblical literature, but especially in what we now characterize in terms of genre as the prophetic literature, right? They're not just reporting divine human communication. They're actually working through the complexities of it and thinking about how it works. And so I see the Bilam story in general, but especially the satirical element as being an important example of that, of really theorizing biblical prophecy. And we just because satire is funny does not mean that it's not serious. Satire actually, the it's in the nature of it that it's a very serious form of comedy. It's a it's the use of humor to draw attention to to social problems, to to political and religious hypocrisy. We could go on and on, but satire is it's a it's an incredibly powerful both literary and political tool. And there are other the whole question of is there humor in the ancient world? Of course, there's humor in the ancient world, but how do we identify it? It's a very it's a very messy question because humor is so culturally determined. Like we think things are funny that they probably didn't think were funny, and vice versa. So there 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 is humor elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible. But I think the bigger question of how this satire and the Bilam story fits in, it's less about the broader question of humor or satire, and more about the broader question of these authors thinking about what prophecy is. And for me, that's like why this Parsha is such a rich, yeah, it's a great story with amazing characters, but at the same time, it's also a really rich theological resource because it, it's asking those questions in these very vivid and intense ways. Dr. Schwartz, thank you so much for sharing such wonderful insights on your favorite Parsha and giving us plenty of food for thought. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, do check out more of our exciting content that we have on our mothership, jewishquest.org. You may also find out more from Dr. Ethan Schwartz from his wonderful essays that can be found on the torah.com including one which expands more on what we've been speaking about today and we do of course look forward to meeting again next week as we continue our journey through the book of numbers mm-hmm.